Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, new world, new rules. We are doing the most significant update of the law in more than a decade. The industry minister wants more regulation on foreign investment, placing more emphasis on national security, responding to changing geopolitical realities. What concerns the minister most? We will speak with Francois-Philippe Champagne. Also, the RCMP kills a deal with a company that had ties to the People's Republic. The Trudeau Liberals move forward with their gun bill and Alberta passes its Sovereignty Act. Our political observers are standing by. And... It makes me worried about the state it's in right now. The Minister of Sport on the future of Hockey Canada and the game in this country. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. With illegal Chinese police stations in the country, allegations of election interference, and what the government calls China's disruptive presence in global politics, national security has been top of mind in Ottawa. The Trudeau government now turning its attention to foreign investment and protecting Canadian assets that might be vulnerable. The man leading that charge is the Minister for Innovation, Science and Industry, Francois-Philippe Champagne, who joins us right now. Minister, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you. Nice to have you. Listen, I, I want to begin here, of course, with the announcement that you made last night, because in making that announcement, you said that Canada needs to update the Investment Canada Act because of changing uh, geopolitical realities. What exactly are you referring to there? Is it specifically China? No, I mean, the law is agnostic, but what I see is that, and, and it's not only in Canada, you've seen that around our, our partners, the G7 partners, Five Eyes around the world, is that the geopolitical landscape has evolved a great deal since the act was last reviewed. I think it's more than a decade ago. So this is about giving us more tool, more authority to be more agile, uh, to, to go at the speed of business and make sure that, you know, with these new tools, we can better protect uh, Canada's economic interests, but also our national security. And, and you've seen me in action already. I think Canadians know by now that when it comes to national security, uh, there won't be ever a compromise. You know, I blocked recently uh, when there was uh, Chinese companies uh, interested in taking uh, ownership or part ownership of some Canadian mining company in lithium. I blocked that. So this is really uh, uh, country agnostic. So it covers any investments by a foreign entity of a Canadian enterprise. Uh, but it's about giving us more flexibility, more tools to make sure we can respond. For example, in some uh, specific areas, we're going to require pre-notification. So if you have a non-Canadian entity who tries to buy a Canadian entity uh, in, in, for example, sensitive technology, critical minerals, anything relating to personal data, we'll ask for pre-notification. We, we can also impose conditions. So we know that in the context of intellectual property, uh, if the transaction is completed and you ask for a divestiture, well, I would say the information has all been transferred. So we will want to prevent that. We'll impose conditions to say, for example, if it's IP-related, you'll have to keep the entity separate to prevent this information from being transferred. Uh, we will also be able to impose undertakings, a bit like American colleagues are doing, because under the current act, it's either yay or nay. 
And mm -hmm. now we, we might be, we will be in a position to say yes, but, and impose a number of conditions, for example, having Canadians on the board, uh, making sure that the information stays in Canada, uh, having higher penalties. So it's really revamping uh, a law which is very crucial in order to protect our economic interests and national security uh, in line with what's happening in the world now. More okay. agility. Yeah, well, let's break that up a little bit because you, you talk about specific areas. And I'm wondering if there are uh, sectors that you are more worried about than others because I realize that there's a complete list that's meant to come out later. But off the top of your head, have you seen investments, deals that you find concerning? Are there sectors that you think require immediate attention? Totally. Well, I would say artificial intelligence, quantum computing, cybersecurity, anything which has to do with personal data uh, will be like a hawk on these things to make sure we protect uh, the interest of Canadians. Uh, those would be the ones, if you ask me now, where we have already applied and in scrutiny, but now we're gonna be uh, making that clear in the law because I also appreciate that uh, we need to provide businesses uh, predictability. Uh, so they will know in advance that when it comes to these sensitive areas, there'll be additional scrutiny uh, to protect our national uh, economic interests and our national security. Now, these amendments uh, would give you or anyone who holds the industry portfolio, uh, as you alluded to, the power to impose uh, restrictions, temporary restrictions on companies who want to invest. You also uh, can then go to the Minister of Public Safety to decide whether or not there needs to be a security review on a proposed investment. But all that said, I'm wondering where does the transparency come in? Because if it boils down to the Minister of Industry and the Minister of Public Safety, where does Parliament come in to be able to, to judge whether or not that type of review is necessary? Well, when it comes to national security, I would say, Michael, um, you always want to be as transparent as you can be with Canadians. But I think folks listening at home understand when it comes to national security, uh, uh, there's things that you cannot just put in the open uh, because that would compromise uh, national security. So we do that with experts, we do that with, with our agency, um, and, and uh, whether it's the RCMP, whether it's the CSIS, our intelligence agency, uh, it's, it's never the ministry taking a decision in vacuum. It's a decision which is reason, uh, which is based on evidence, and which is informed by our national security agencies, which provide uh, the analysis, and then obviously it's for the minister to make a final decision. But I think there's a number of safeguards to make sure that these decisions are in the best interest of Canadians. Do you worry about scary away investment, though? And I understand there, there are national security concerns, but up against that is the reality that we as a country, uh, we are a trading nation. We rely on foreign partners, foreign deals in order to create economic activity. Do you worry about scaring away companies? No, not at all. Michael, listen, I've been on the road. I was in Japan. I was in South Korea. I just came back from Germany two days ago. I mean, we see a record level of interest in investing in Canada because we have what the world needs and what the economy of the 20, 21st century needs to be prosperous. So uh, I have no concern. I, at least I would even say that this is being applauded by our allies and partners around the world because say, Canada is serious when it comes to national security. Uh, we're gonna protect our critical minerals so they are available to our friends and allies around the world. Uh, we're gonna protect sensitive technologies uh, we're going to be making sure that personal data is protected. I think it provides, a, you know, a, a level playing field with our partners of the G7, the Five Eyes. Everyone is upping their game uh, because of the geopolitical context, which has changed dramatically uh, over the last 10 years. And, mm -hmm. and uh, I think, it, you know, I'll never apologize for protecting the national security 
of Canada and protecting Canadians. Okay, I hear you say that, but of course your announcement yesterday was made the same day that Radio Canada broke that story about a government contract for RCMP Communications that was awarded to a company that has ties with the Chinese uh, government. In fact, its parent company, Hytera, is facing 21 espionage charges in the United States. Does your bill, does your intent here get undermined when a government contract goes to a firm with such questionable ties? Well, listen, it sent a signal in town that everyone needs to be more vigilant. I'm like you and, and Canadians, and I think the Prime Minister has been outspoken. Uh, we're all concerned about that. We need to get to the bottom of things to understand how could this ever happen. Uh, obviously, the Invest in Canada Act is not targeted, I would say, at, at government contract. This is about foreign investment. Uh, but one thing that we just learned is that that contract has been suspended by the RCMP. I think it's the right decision, but now we need to go beyond that. We need to understand how could this ever happen. And I hope what I've announced yesterday is kind of a sending a signal in town that everyone needs to be more vigilant, every department, every agency, uh, when they're contracting, they need to take into account, like they always do national security, but I think we need uh, better processes to make sure that we are very vigilant uh, to, to make sure that situation like the one you're mentioning uh, does not happen again. Mr. Champagne, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michael, for having me, and uh, hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Take care. Well, to continue our conversation now, let's bring in our political observers. Susan Smith is principal with Blue Sky Strategy Group, Kate Harrison, vice chair with Suma Strategies, and Kim Wright, principal for Wright Strategies. Hello to the three of you. Good to be here. Hello. So I want to begin here with the last point that was made uh, by the minister and the point I was making to him as well in our interview. That, uh, the question as to whether or not the government's credibility on security has essentially been diminished by the awarding of an RCMP communications contract to a company that has ties to the Chinese government. Now that deal has been already rescinded, but it does go down to, I guess, an issue of credibility. Susan, what do you think of it? Michael, I had a two-word tweet when I saw this story yesterday, and it was the, my two words were monumentally stupid. Um, this goes right to the heart of the officials, I think, who are looking at this project, and it goes to the heart of our procurement process here. Um, we unfortunately have a process in Canada at the moment where it's lowest price for some projects, and that's what happened here, and nobody did their proper homework at the officials level. So uh, I think the government has taken the right steps to cancel this contract. I think it's got to go further and get this technology ripped out. And Minister Champagne just yesterday in the House of Commons uh, announced new updates to the Investment Canada Act that's going to require much more uh, heightened review of these kinds of things and of these kinds of projects. And that... Um, it's disappointing that it ha that it happened. Uh, it's a real, it's beyond a head scratcher. It's a you know slam hand, slam forehead into palm of hand. Uh, but the government has to get smarter, and the government includes the officials who are looking at these things. The ministers' offices aren't looking at five hundred thousand dollar contracts, which was the value of this contract. So this is incumbent on the independent public service to do their jobs too. Mm -hmm. uh, Kate, what do you make of it? Because, you know, to hear it from the opposition, they basically say this proves that the government really is not backing up their own words when it comes to, to taking a tougher stance against countries like China. Well, and this is just the latest example, Michael, of that being the case. This is not a one-off situation where uh, the government made a whoopsie to a contractor. Um, there's, of course, the longstanding issues with Huawei are heel-dragging on that, despite other um, Five Eyes countries deciding very early on that we were going to have Huawei technology. 
um, Chinese-owned enterprises were able to access uh, some of the COVID benefits that Canadians uh, were receiving, the wage subsidy benefits. So uh, you speak about credibility, and, and that question to the minister is an important one. The pattern of behaviour of this government uh, not taking action on this uh, soon enough has really made this a, a challenge. This is a pattern of behaviour of them not taking security credentials uh, seriously when they're looking at procurement. I'm glad to see the rules that are coming into effect, but I think a lot of people rightly are saying that it's too little too late. Well, Kim, what's your take on it? Because, you know, if not for the Radio Canada report, would the rest of the country have known about this deal? There's also that, that part of the report that essentially says that the main competitor for this contract was a Quebec-based company and that, you know, and this picks up on Susan's point, that the bid from the Quebec company was only $60,000 more. What's your reaction? Yeah, so much of procurement feels these days like it's penny-wise, pound-foolish. And when we see that discrepancy of about $60,000 for a Canadian-based company that could have not only done the job, but just as well as the other company, there should be metrics in place that look at the value add to the or to the country when they're looking at communications and, and any sort of procurement. This is not a new thing. This is just an increasingly frustrating thing. And what I, I find interesting, Michael, and this goes back to a bigger problem of procurement across the country, not just when we talk about foreign countries, uh, but there isn't enough light shed on who is purchasing, who is procuring, and politicians and, and, and bureaucrats have taken the sort of don't ask us any questions because they, you have to have ill intentions when you do it. Sometimes procurement actually does need to have a light shone on it to see who's bidding, how they're bidding, how are these going through. Uh, and I think that that's part of the overhaul that needs to happen, not just in this instance, uh, but across the country. Mm -hmm. uh, listen, I want to switch over to guns right now, because uh, as you know, big issue this week, the Prime Minister saying that his government is still very much committed to, to banning assault-style firearms and adding that amendment, those amendments, into their gun bill. Kate, there is apparently a fine-tuning happening based on the criticism that's been raised about this bill. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think a lot of this uh, heartache at this point for the, the government could have been avoided by more robust consultation at the outset. Uh, there was a lot of criticism when the bill was first introduced that it was too far-reaching. Uh, and now you're hearing groups like the AFN, for instance, step up and say, uh, you know, this is not uh, going to respect uh, the hunters and anglers in the Indigenous community. Um, and it casts too broad of a net. Uh, so, you know, there is a lot of consensus on the importance of tackling gun violence. Where there's less consensus is whether or not 21 is the right way to do it. And how will this meaningfully crack down on the real issue, which is firearms coming in from the United States, illegal handguns, already illegal weapons, uh, as opposed to punishing law-abiding uh, firearm owners? So I think they went out a bit too far on 21, and had they consulted broader earlier, they would be avoiding this legislative hiccup now. Uh, Kim, I, I think it's very interesting to, to watch this debate happening because, of course, historically, New Democrats have called for gun control, but the amendments have party members in more rural parts of this country fighting back. How difficult is this issue for the NDP to navigate? Well, it's interesting. It's taken the Liberal government since 2015 to create 
legislation that really just isn't going to solve any of the crime-related issues that we have in this country, including, as Kate mentioned, the porous border that we have that continues to allow illegal guns to come across this country, which is what 80% of the gun crimes that are happening in this country are. And Chief, former Chief Blair uh, certainly knows that. He can certainly talk to this with great uh, eloquence when he chooses to. And clearly, when writing this bill, no one in the government has chosen to figure out how we actually get a gun crime in this country. And part of that is, and not to be, you know, discharitable this time of year, but they're not interested in getting at these at these major issues. The, the government is looking at scoring cheap political points. If people were actually interested in solving gun crime issues, we would have a, a much more robust plan. We would have a border security measure. We would have economic uh, incentives for people in communities so they're not turning to guns and gangs issues. And so what we're seeing in the backlash of this is is entirely predictable. What I didn't have on my bingo card on the gunnies issue uh, was Carrie Price wading into this and having to and and the coalition of uh, firearms rights, so-called, uh, you know, cheapening uh, this issue by any stretch of the imagination by using poly as a merch code especially coming uh, as we are this week on on the anniversary of Ecole Polytechnique and the femicide that happened in that instance. There is no reason that Corey Price did not know this. Certainly the Montreal Canadiens have had to educate him, as have a number of other folks. Uh, and this coalition, frankly, whoever thought that that was a good merch code should give their damn how to shake. Uh, Susan, I, I wonder whether or not the Liberals are going to have to walk back uh, the amendments at this point, because, uh, you know, there is the opposition from Hunters, the, there's now the opposition from the AFN, which just came out uh, uh, today, this week, and there's also the opposition even within the Liberal backbench. Will the government have to walk back those amendments? I, I think you'll see some fine-tuning of those amendments. The Prime Minister said there's going to be more consulting, but the bottom line is uh, a bill that restricts handguns, a bill that restricts assault rifles or assault weapons is a good thing. I think the implementation of the last amendment has been clumsy and there have been some uh, legit hunters who are le own legit uh, shotguns and rifles that have been captured in this. And that needs to be walked back. Kate talked about further consultation. I think they should have done more of that. But to say, you know, new legislation or any legislation, I think that restricts the access uh, and uh, um, condemns the legality of these kinds of weapons, I think is a good thing in the country. That doesn't mean there aren't more measure measures that need to take place, but I think it's difficult to be against uh, legislation that restricts the access of assault uh, rifles. I understand how hunters could be upset, and so let's define what those specific um, those specific guns are, but Kate, uh, Kim referred to the sector or the industry and the lobby and the gun lobby. And that's a very wily industry who has come up with lots of ways to modify guns and make certain weapons assault rifles by increasing the magazines and the rap the rapidity at which guns can, you know, uh, ammunition can be fired. That's what the government is trying to capture. The government is supportive of hunters, absolutely. They're supportive of people being being able to go on the land and do their traditional hunting or for people who do it recreationally. There's no question in who do it safely with, with safe and legal weapons. But we've got to get rid of assault uh, weapons. We don't need them.
Uh, really, uh, one last go around here, because I do want to get this topic, so quick answers from all of you, because I, I think it's important to acknowledge that Alberta has passed its Sovereignty Act now, and I'm wondering, how does that change, should it change, uh, the way Ottawa does business with Alberta going forward? Susan, quickly. Well, I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. Uh, there's a provincial election in Alberta uh, next year, early next year. Uh, um, I think the government of Alberta thinking it can override federal law is fallacy, and I think there's going to be a lot of activity in court if they choose to actually activate and implement this law. Kate? Yeah, I, I think that it should give the federal government some pause in terms of uh, their relationship with the province, uh, their relationship with Saskatchewan. What we see here with the implementation of this is Alberta saying that they're looking for some of the uh, protection and um, sovereignty, frankly, that provinces like Quebec have been given for some time. I suspect that we'll see a lot of use of this in the next six months, given the election timing. So we'll see how the implementation rolls out compared to the legislation that's now passed. Uh, Kim, quickly to you. I think we're rapidly approaching a conversation about what do we need to do to both keep the country together and reframe our constitution. I am well concerned about the Sovereignty Act, more concerned that the Prime Minister this week uh, basically uh, passed the buck on any sort of funding for municipalities or picking up the heavy load on many of the federal government's promises, including on housing, uh, and saying, don't ask us for money, that's the province's responsibility, you're creatures of the province. I think we need to have a bigger conversation about how do we get the, that funding mechanism on, on the way beyond the politics of what's happening uh, with Daniel Smith and her Sovereignty Act. Okay, well, good to get your thoughts on the matter. In fact, all the matters today. Susan Smith, Kate Harrison, Kim Wright, really appreciate having the three of you today. Thank you. Thank you. Last night, we aired for you the first part of our interview with the sports minister, Pascal Senange. We talked about her decision to cheer Team Canada from home instead of traveling to Qatar for the World Cup. Now, Qatar helped Canada evacuate people with ties to this country after the fall of Kabul and Afghanistan. But Qatar has also come under fire for its treatment of the 2S LGBTQ community and foreign laborers. In the second part of our interview, the minister and I talked about discrimination here at home and the scandal in Hockey Canada that led to the resignation of that body's board of directors. And when it comes to challenges, of course, Canada has its own. And, you know, you, we mentioned LGBTQ rights. I'm thinking uh, homophobia in this country. Uh, and, and there was a new report out, and this was last week from Hockey Canada. And based on their own survey, players under the age of 18 in the 13 affiliated uh, leagues with Hockey Canada, uh, that age group was the most likely to discriminate on the ice and the most likely... Uh, insults, discrimination, were in the form of homophobia, transphobic slurs. Does that make you despair or worry about the future of hockey in this country? It makes me worried about the state it's in right now. Uh, but the fact that Hockey Canada now has this data, uh, that we know more about what's happening on the ice. You know, there's always been um, speculation about the discrimination happening in toxic culture in hockey, but to have that type of data for the first time and know that those incidents happen so regularly and particularly in that age group, uh, it also, I think it's going to help build a stronger plan to address those issues and uh, better educate young players um, and, and uh, prevent those situations from happening. And uh, I really hope to see a lot of changes at the Board of Hockey Canada with more diversity so that 
it, it can trickle down all the way through the organization and have specific pro programs to address those issues. It's about sustainability of sport also. Canada is a super diverse country, uh, and uh, if sport organize, organizations want to be relevant and appeal to kids and parents now and in the future, they need to make those changes and, and change the culture within sport, and especially hockey. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, of course, there was the revelation over the summer that Hockey Canada had, uh, rather than investigate uh, allegations of sexual assault, they, they paid off the victims who stepped forward in order to, to buy their silence. You, the, the board resigned, you had called for the resignation of the board. Uh, you talk a little bit about a trickle-down effect. Is the resignation of a board enough to trigger that kind of change? No, it's not enough, uh, but it sends a signal uh, that uh, it's no longer acceptable, uh, that the status quo is not accepted uh, by society, by players themselves by parents, uh, by the Directors parents that pays the fees also, because we, uh, we heard a, a really big response from sponsors, but also parents and, and uh, affiliated organizations. So, uh, but then we need to see new people uh, around the table uh, with diverse backgrounds and diverse expertise, especially in governance, because so many problems were happening right at the top of the organization, how they manage those cases. Um, how they treated sexual abuse as an insurance policy instead of uh, really fighting against that culture of sex, sexual violence and, and the culture of silence. So um, I think that something has begun, uh, mm -hmm. but we need to pay close attention and make sure that it does happen and that it's not just a once, once uh, event, that it, that it continues in the future. How would it continue though? Because you know, when you, you talk about sexual assault, yeah. and rather than listening to and investigating incidents of, of, of these allegations, they lean on misogyny and try to buy people's silence. So how do you change that? What are you looking for when you say that it can't be a one-time event? What would indicate to you that it's greater than this one-time event? Well, um, there's different things. Uh, first of all, it was really important for us to have Hockey Canada signed with the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner so that independent investigations no longer are in the hands of the organization itself, but that there's an independent uh, mechanism in place to investigate cases of, of abuse, maltreatment, sexual abuse. Of course, sexual abuse is uh, always gonna be a, a criminal offense. Uh, so, and like we saw in about the allegations in 2003 and 2018, the local police have reopened their own investigations and that's the right place to turn to when, uh, when situations of uh, sexual uh, violence happens. But with the sports system, we need to have uh, investigations about how those cases are managed, have the management taken the right steps to prevent these things from happening and when they do have they done the right thing by making sure that those that perpetrate criminal offense are responsible and are accountable for their own action and that was the problem at Hockey Canada. Um, so that was the first step signing with the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. What we're working on right now and that's not just for Hockey Canada but all sport organization is we're going to bring in some new uh, governance uh, expectations uh, so that there is more diversity around the table, so that 
the governance uh, practices are better and, and conform with the norm and what should be happening at, on every board and to have more financial transparency and education and prevention. Uh, so I, you know, my goal as Minister of Sport is to bring in all the leadership I can to make sure that collectively everyone involved in the sports system, whether it's the organizations themselves, uh, my counterparts in the provinces and territories that are responsible for community and provincial sport, that all of us do what is needed to uh, prevent abuse and maltreatment in sport. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been the Minister of Sport uh, for, for about a year. Uh, it's been quite the year that you've had to deal with a number of different issues. I, I think you alluded to it in part, but what do you hope your impact will be? At the end of the day, as the minister with this portfolio, what do you hope your impact will be? I want to empower athletes um, because there's a lot of power imbalance in the sports system. Uh, athletes' career depend on their coaches, on their organizations. So they need to have a stronger voice and more power um, to counterbalance that uh, that that reality, and uh, so that they feel safe in speaking out, uh, so that uh, they feel like they have a place at the decision table as well, uh, because it's about them anyways, uh, and to make sure that all organizations and everyone involved in the sports system knows and understand that we're doing this for the athletes, and to make sure that they have you know everything they need to perform and and be who they are and also uh, that they're safe and that they come out of the sports system as a healthy and, and wholesome human being. Pascal Sainonge, thank you very much for the time. Thank you. And that is our program for tonight. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Sarabia. We'll see you again tomorrow.